Welcome to In the Studio, our weekly one-hour look at the world of music and all things about it. Hello, Blair Packham. Hello, Bob Reed. We've got something a little different this week, I dare say. That's right. We're going to do a theme show. Yeah. yeah. We've done this kind of thing before, yep. but uh, we haven't for a while. And I thought this was a great idea that you had, that we should take a, a pretty weighty issue when it comes to music and musicians and the, the culture and the lifestyle and everything else that goes into being a musician. We're going to do exactly that. We're going to put it under the microscope and go deep with a panel of accomplished recording artists, songwriters, performers. Uh, and before the end of the show, I think we'll have a few minutes that we'll also be able to give you uh, an update on uh, the situation with Hughes Room. There's some good news there. There's bad news about HMV and the Silver Dollar Lounge here in the city of Toronto. But we're going to kick off with uh, what I think promises to be a very candid discussion. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Well, the last two of them, anyway, will be our focus here because from the original days of jazz through to the heydays of 60 rock and right onward into today, the combination of musician and drug and alcohol abuse has always sort of been there. And we make fun sometimes of, of Keith Richards or Ozzy Osbourne's abilities to ingest just about everything and survive. Uh, but for most, it really isn't funny. And joining us to uh, dig deep into this are three friends of ours here on the program, all excellent musicians, and all with some experience uh, in this department. Sean Pynchon, his new album is called Monkey Brain, and he is one of the most uh, committed musical blues guys we know, with oddball slide stylings, virtuoso soloing, and confessional growly lyrics. It's a really compelling stew of rootsy goodness that Sean serves up. David McMichael is here. He was with us just recently talking about his band, The Danger Bees, and their new album, Fish With Wings. And Bill Wood, Bill Wood and the Woodies, one of the undeniable good guys, uh, as we like to think of him. His latest album, his group's latest album, Mumbo Jumbo Tumbo. I said that correctly, right, it. Bill? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is now making lots of noise here in Canada and in the UK, where he's got a good following as well. Uh, Bill, in the 80s, was with pop favorites I.I. as well. So there is the credentials check. Welcome, all gentlemen. Thank Hello. you guys for, Thank you. for being part of this. Let's start with the question of why musicians? Why is it sort of the cliche of the, uh, the strung-out musician versus not necessarily the painter or the writer or the auto mechanic or, yeah, the mailman. Well, uh, maybe I've known some mailmen. (laughs) I've known a few mailmen (laughs) fall into that category. Charles Bukowski was a mailman. There you go. Good point. Sean Pynchon, why don't you kick Uh, off? Well, I think personally, uh, for me, it's always been because performing uh, is in front of people. You don't fix a car in front of people, and you probably would do a worse job if you did have the client staring at you. Um, and for me personally, having a social anxiety attached to some other thing like free beer, um, which was a portion of my pay for the last you know 20 years, you know, and going outside and smoking some weed and stuff, like it was sort of like an escapism meets this is going to make it easier because I have to deal with people of all shapes and sizes with all sorts of opinions. And, uh, and people come up to you, especially when you're playing solo, and they'll say just about anything to you. So you're more vulnerable than sitting in a studio painting by yourself or with 
another artist, I guess, because they're not going to pick on you as bad, but <laughs> the public can be rude. David McMichael, you nodded uh, when Sean said about uh, social anxiety. Is that something you... Absolutely. Uh, I think there's, I know a lot of musicians, myself included, who like to think that a couple beers before getting on stage will help lubricate your persona, uh, you know, make it so that you're a little more at ease, you're a little more charismatic. Loosen me up a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, you do have the uh, stage fright sometimes when you're scared to get in front of people, and where do you go when you're scared? You know, it's alcohol is, uh, is a safe haven, and uh, conveniently, shows always happen where alcohol is readily available. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's access, I suppose. That's a big, big Absolutely. part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Bill, I'm curious about your creative process. The Beatles are, are were famous for their, you know, their forays into marijuana and then LSD, and how and and it was, it was assumed that that the drug influence was why they became sort of so creative mm-hmm. and so. How about you and the creative process and and that sort of thing? I think initially there was just the the whole fascination with the, the music world, and, and I remember like when Woodstock came out. I mean, yeah. we would go every weekend for two months when it was playing at the Burlington Mall and sit through two showings. And um, you know, I mean, I was just fascinated with the whole idea of smoking pot. Like you know, I was in grade seven, and I, you know, and by the time we were grade eight, we were like trying our best to get hold of some pot. I mean, just the whole concept of just being as cool as our idols was was part of it. And, you know, and I remember when I finally did get hold of some pot, it was, you know, it wasn't anything like I expected. You know, I kind of curled up in a fetal position and was, you know, totally, you know, freaked out and uh, what have you. You know, of course, over the years, all of that changed and it got hold of me. But uh, definitely sort of the idol worship and just the whole wanting to embrace the rock and roll lifestyle was was already like a focus before the drugs ever really took a hold of my life. What was your drug? I, I guess at first it was basically a combination of alcohol and, and pot. But the thing was like um, for the longest time I would maybe smoke pot at uh, rehearsals and what have you but uh, performing live was sort of important, and I, you know, the rest of the guys would be getting high, but uh, but I wouldn't be. And I remember one time we were stuck up in, uh, I think maybe it was Smith Falls or Temiskaming or whatever, and we had to do like a Saturday afternoon matinee, and we were, you know, we had partied all the night before and blah blah blah. Anyways, the guys go, "Come on, Bill, you know, have a toke." And and uh, so we went. Uh, so I had a toke and uh, went out to play this afternoon matinee. And I was like a different creature. And like I danced up a storm and I just put on the show of my life, you know. <laughs> and I was like, wow, who knew? And so at that point, it kind of became hand in hand with, with the performing aspect. And, and right. Right. You know, as far as cr- creativity, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, if you're smoking pot constantly... You know, you can kind of just put yourself into a, a fuzz, you know. But if uh, if you're kind of using it sort of in a whatever controlled a controlled sort of way, a, a pot can be, you know, a creativity enhancer. You know, yeah. it is a bit mm-hmm. of a stimulus, and it's a, you know, it's like a good cup of coffee. It can kind of sort of just shake things right. up and get you a little bit excited and and spark just sort of your, you know, your pistons going a little bit. But you know, it can. I've also... never I've never done that. I've, I I I like a beer now and again. And I don't write songs when I've had a beer now and again. 
But it's it's interesting. You're intriguing me, Bill. Blair's <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I know that wasn't the point of this whole discussion. But David McMichael, I want to ask uh, I want to ask you about that because you're known for your sharp songwriting, for being a, a very clever songwriter and lyricist. Any thoughts on writing under the influence versus not? Uh, I think I'm more known for being a sad songwriter and. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, most of my sadness comes from uh, my years spent of being an alcoholic. I've been sober for three years, so I have uh, some good perspective on that now. But it was not being drunk that was writing the music for me. It was kind of more the morning after the self-loathing and the like, (laughs) I would just do anything to not be alive this very minute. It was that that drove my uh, songwriting for for many many years, yeah. and I think I was also uh, I was also terrified to quit because I said, uh, as soon as I stop drinking, my career as a songwriter is over. I won't have anything to write about anymore. <laughs> Clearly, that's not the case, though, as it has turned out. Absolutely, yeah. It's just like anything else. I focused, you know, the energy into other things and the songs. Just, you know, they're still coming. They're just not about how hungover I am anymore. <laughs> oh, here's something I'm curious about. Each of you guys is, is at a different spot on, a, on, on the road to sobriety, I suppose. You could, you could put it that way. But how did you... Well, let's put it this way. Sean made an announcement on Facebook that I read. Mm-hmm. So you made a very public announcement about this. I did. D- David, did you tell all your friends? Bill, did you tell your friends? Like, Or was it a quiet kind of thing that you undertook? It was a quiet thing until I did a Facebook post, which kind of blew it up, and I had no idea. Like, I just kind of put a shout-out to some of the other artists that over the years had posted about their sobriety, and then I was just a few weeks into it and feeling uh, kind of hopeful or whatever, and I just thought, you know, I should just kind of put a nod to these other people that have been more public, kind of just thinking, I, you know, whatever, those folks might, you know, acknowledge it, and it just kind of blew wide open, and, yeah. and it actually just kind of uh, changed the whole journey and realized, wow, there's like a whole world of people that are, you know, struggling the same way I am, and, uh, but it was also a very much an encouraging thing, and, I, and it's definitely like just kind of solidified my, my sense of uh, just, continuing with the journey. So I haven't been drinking for a couple of months now. Life is really, like, I'm just, I can't believe the stuff I'm getting done, you know? Yeah. Like, it's just, uh, it's easy to kind of just fall in. I'm not, not like I was like a stumbling drunk all the time, but just kind of a regular kind of after dinner, crack open a beer and watch TV and all of the, the to-do list just getting neglected, neglected, neglected. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cool thing. This is a great discussion so far. We've got lots more to talk about. You're listening to In the Studio, In With Us, Sean Pynchon, David McMichael, and Bill Wood. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you, of course, back right after this. Welcome back to In the Studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you. And our panel guests, Sean Pynchon, 
David McMichael and Bill Wood. And we're talking about uh, substance abuse and the world of music because the two have for so long seemed to have uh, gone hand in hand and there's a lot of experience uh, around this particular table on it. Sean Pynchon, wanted to come back to you. Bill Wood was, was sharing with us his experience of making a reference on Facebook mm -hmm. to deciding to, uh, to clean up his act and a tremendous amount of support came in as a result of that. Was that your experience? It was exactly my experience. Uh, I had managed to tail in a few complaints with some of the things that I had been dealing with on a professional level. Uh, and, and some of it was both financial. Uh, some of it was, you know, some of the attention that I was getting that wasn't always positive at shows. Uh, and, and, you know, when you play a lot of shows, you know, you start to kind of just blend in. And I was so so in this habit of kind of being high all the time. Like, my, my, my drug of choice was was marijuana, like constantly, um, and and I didn't realize there was a, anything until it became a financial burden. And I remember playing a house party at the beginning of December this year, or it was the end of November, and and I was I was empty and I couldn't focus on anything. All I could think about was when that show was done. I had to go and find some, and I remember that feeling very very empty for the first time. And I'm 35 years old, and I started smoking pot when I was about 15. And I actually used marijuana to stop smoking cigarettes, which was really weird. I just started smoking more of that, figuring I'll live forever now. But <laughs> was it was that the turning point moment for you? Yeah, that that, that, that was it. And uh, and so and I I had a recently deflated relationship that was on its ends, and uh, unfortunately I had burdened her with too much of my uh, my crap for for too long. So when I put it out on Facebook, it was kind of a selfish way of doing it. Because I do find that Facebook has that kind of narcissistic sense to sure. it. Uh, I mean, Wastebook would be a better name for it. But I decided to use it for something. I was like, you know, I'm just going to say what I feel. And I got about 300 comments from people I haven't met that are in rehabs all over Ontario. Wow. And that's when I started to feel like, hey, you know, like maybe I don't need to really be concerned with the people that I feel I need to be concerned with. I need to worry about myself. And there are people out there, too, swimming in the deep water that... That, you know, thought I had it together, and I didn't even know they knew I existed. But you know, I'm I'm now intrigued. So, and a friend of mine, uh, actually from the great uh, the Canadian Race show, uh, my friend Jackie, who I worked with, uh, was about 18 days ahead of me on my awakening. Oh. So she actually called me out of the blue and was like, "Dude, there's meetings every day of the week. Here's a booklet. Go to a meeting. Do this. Do that." And so I, I, I within about a month, I, I decided to try all these different things. I did Cam H. I tried AA meetings. Um, I really put myself into where these people that associate with this this sort of lifestyle go, and uh, it was really eye-opening, and, and I actually learned more about what I was actually dealing with, and then, of course, my relationship fell apart, and you'd think sobering up would, <laughs> would save it, but, you know, you know, when the ship's sinking, the ship's sinking, but it was actually a huge weight off my shoulder when I was able to look back after six weeks, I don't know what I'm at, like two months now, uh, I haven't smoked any weed, and um, I, I took a month off drinking, but now I, I, I'm very recreational. Like, I can't drink while I'm playing. The show has to be over. Um, I just don't let any of that into my body unless it's, like, movie time with popcorn and the old dog. Uh, but even that's really hard to get to when you're playing four nights a week, five nights a week. Like, I maybe get one night a week now. Um, so mental discipline is certainly something I'm working on right now. Um, but quitting smoking, uh, you know, the amount that I was smoking has kind of been like a secondary cigarette addiction, so... 
it's hard to do all that stuff. It is. Yeah. It, it's really hard. David and Michael, I w- wanted to ask you about, was, it, was there a, a, a turning point moment for you where, where you suddenly said, all right, that's it, I've got to get a handle on this, or was it more gradual for you? I mean, over the years, I knew that I had a drinking problem and that I had to address it, but it seemed like, uh, you know, it's this treadmill with alcohol where... It, the alcohol holds you down and makes you sad, and you say the only thing that's going to make me feel better now is more alcohol. Just and yeah. uh, you just—it's like you can never ever get out of it. And uh, it was actually—I um, decided to quit smoking, and uh, I knew I was never going to get out from underneath cigarettes if I continued to drink at the rate that I was, which was about 100 beers a minute every day. Um, and, uh, that admirable. might be a record. So, yeah, I'm proud of you. So I quit, I quit smoking and drinking on the same day, and two days wow. in, I was a shaky, sweaty mess, and I realized with this first moment of lucidity that I had in years that it's crazy how much I drink <laughs> and yeah. I should not ever drink again. And of course it wasn't as smooth as that. I was able to never ever smoke again, uh, but I did have a few uh, lapses and relapses with the alcohol, but it was never like, okay, I'm just back to being drunk all day, every day. And so that was the beginning of my sobriety where it was like, well, I was still withdrawing from it that I knew, you know, the gig was up. Like I was really done. Any of you guys ever listen to live recordings or watch videos of yourselves when you were altered and, and go, yes. ah, uh, that's not as good as I can be? Every, every YouTube video that's ever been out there, yeah. ever in the history of anything, because I didn't play my first sober gig until this past December. Uh, and that's considering, like, even shows I played in high school. Like, I was always high, so... But you see it when you look at those I felt videos. it. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as I was able to eliminate having any beer or any pot, uh, and, you know, when I was able to remember the lyrics and kind of not have a panic attack, I realized that I was lasting three sets, uh, that I had way more ammunition in the gun. I could, I could just fire off way more stuff. I was remembering songs I haven't done in a long time. And I was like, man... I built a whole entire career on, like, 50% of my capabilities. So now I, I kind of feel like that's holding me on where, I, you know, if I'm going to do this now, it's, you know, for me, I mean, I know a lot of people can't go back to drinking and stuff, and I know I can't go back to smoking pot. I just know it. Um, but when I'm having a beer at home, it's a different relationship now from ha- than me even conceiving having a beer at a bar. You know, like, I give my beer tickets away now, and, and I have tea. A lot of places don't even ask me if I want to drink anymore. I was very like, yo, we're done. Uh, and I, and that's the way it's got to be because I, in order for me to really get my potential, you know, maybe I, I wouldn't be complaining so much about what I was doing and where I was doing it if I really knew what I could do. And when you don't really know who you are from a teenager to 35 years old, I mean, that's, that's something. I, I mean, I'm still now getting used to the fact that my, uh, I'll get angry or I'll get happy faster than I'm used to because I'm not stoned. Right. And it's just like my reaction time is a little faster than I've ever known. So it's interesting. Such a great discussion. We are going to carry on here in the studio. Our guests are Sean Pynchon, David McMichael, and Bill Wood. Bob Reed and Blair Pack, I'm back with you with more right after this.
Welcome back in the studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you. We're continuing our very candid discussion here uh, about alcohol and drugs and music and how they go together and sometimes don't mix very well. In the studio with us, Sean Pynchon, David McMichael from the Danger Bees, and Bill Wood from Bill Wood and the Woodies. Bill Wood and the Woodies, but you were uh, you were as we mentioned earlier uh, the singer in I I uh-huh. in the nineteen eighties when my band the Jitters was happening, and so we would see you guys around mm-hmm. and so forth. It seemed to me at that time uh, that cocaine was the drug of choice amongst uh, musicians. I am an addict, so we'll just you know put right. that you out ha- in the that's... open. But I had a, a terrible cocaine addiction. Now. Um, like, I.I. was sort of, like, such a great opportunity as well as I became a father. And so when I got the news that I was going to be a dad, like, I had been trying to get off cocaine for, for years. And it was a nightmare. I mean, I would just disappear. Uh, my wife would, or my girlfriend at the time wouldn't know where I was, but the bank account would just get emptied because I'd just be there with the card, you know, in some, you know, some crack house. But crack wasn't actually a thing, so it was just, you know, a den somewhere yeah. with a bunch of, you know junkies like myself and um you know by the time i would show up at home i would just be a broken mess and there would be no money in the bank plus i would be owing somebody like a thousand dollars i mean it was just a nightmare and i i tried to get off it on my own for the longest time then uh the news that i was going to be a a father so when i first was part of ii i still had my cocaine addiction I got news that I was going to be a father, so I walked to the Clark Institute, which is now the CAMH, and just said, I need help. And uh, so we did an assessment. They put me in a program, and um, the whole idea was to stay off of everything. So I like the problem was was I could stay off cocaine for a certain amount of time, but then if I went out and had a few beers, as soon as I get a few beers into me, I'd call the dealer, and I'd be over there picking up. And this just was just a constant pattern. So that's what I, I tried to do. I went through this program. It was a three-week po- program, and then I was on my own trying to, and I was falling apart. Like, I knew I was going to crack. What I ended up doing was smoking pot, and pot kept me off of the cocaine, and it kept me off of the alcohol, and I was able to, you know, hold down a job, like, uh, contribute to the... the function. The function. Mm, yeah. And uh, But it, it but... kept, you know, the monster of the real trouble away and uh and that's how i i uh you know i stayed off alcohol for seven years and then you know i mean i had to kind of shut off my whole complete life and even uh touring with ii was tough because there would be the after parties and things like that and i would just kind of i mean i would you know i was still having a bit of a puff or whatever but it was not the same kind of ooh hi you know just the and so I did feel a little bit of like an outsider but you know it was the best thing what about the other guys in the band did they ever come to you, uh, or, or were were they were they kind of uh, doing the same kinds of things that, that you're up to? I'm just curious about uh, n- other bandmates. You know? No, I mean they were drinking and and you know would do the odd line here sure. or there. I was kind of the I like I just have an addictive personality. So I re- I remember like uh, you know coming into. Uh, a meeting for like a video shoot and uh, for II, you know, it's all like, I mean, you know, we had a record company, whatever. And I mean, I walked in and literally just fell into the chair and the chair fell over and I'm on the floor, you know, and there's like, you know, the rest of the guys in the band just looking at, you know, the video director. Like, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, I was an embarrassment, you know. And, but did uh, they ever kind of sit you down and say, Bill, um, we got to. Well, I think, we I, I think just the way, just the, 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 the 
you know, yes, there were a lot of concerns, but nobody actually sat down to, to you know, uh, lay down the law. Right. I think yeah. just the, the way fate happened that the news of me uh, going to be a father was just enough of it. But they were totally yeah. supportive, you know, and I remember like early into the whole journey, there was no non-alcoholic beverages, but there were they were these shandies, you know, and I remember yeah. kind of like, well, I guess this is what, you know, I remember Andy Ryan just running over, grabbing this thing out of my hand and just going all out of his way to find me, you know, a Coca-Cola. And when I saw him doing that and the alarm, you know, I, these kind of things started to hit home just how you know, how big a deal this was and how, how, how much they were also rooting for me that I could, in fact, you know, blow their ship as well as mine out of the water. David McMichael, how about you? With, with other guys when you were drinking, was it, did, it, did it become an issue with, with them, with bandmates? Yeah, it I... became an issue with them when I stopped drinking. When you stopped, when you <laughs> yeah. stopped. How so? Uh, no, not really. Uh, but let's just say we were all very much in it together. Uh, okay. We all yeah. came to Toronto from the East Coast, and uh, everybody was very much on the same page. Like, hey, it's Monday morning. Let's get a drink, you know. And so everyone kind of assisted in normalizing the behavior, which was part of the problem. And then the band sort of uh, collapsed in on itself. And then I quit. So it was it was kind of the band taking a little leave of absence that allowed me to uh, finally sober up. And then we carried on with a considerably more sober lineup. Sean, you work solo. Uh, yeah, like 98% of the time. Yeah. Right. So yeah. so these band experiences aren't necessarily the th same kind of things that you're sharing. No, and that's actually where it got a little difficult for me is because I was on the road so much, like doing a month tour by myself across Canada or even just with one other songwriter. I've driven across Canada five times with a pipe in one hand, you know, and uh, I have never had a DUI or you know, I've never had a ticket for anything like that, but I was I was walking that line for 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 15 years, um, driving around and playing, or 10 years, um, and that and that's what it was. Is I was able to actually build this weird lifestyle where I had a cocoon. Like as soon as the set was done, I was in my car, smoking two to three bowls, and then I'd be back on stage and I'd do it, and then I'd go back in my car and do it for the next set, and then go back and play, and then the whole way home I would do it, and then when I got home I'd roll a joint and have a beer. So I, at first I was like, I guess I can still drink and, and, and monitor my pot habit. But it was like, you, you know, like Bill was saying, it's, it, it's hard to have one without the other. Trying to quit smoking cigarettes and then not having a coffee. Right. You know, right. if you go and have a coffee, you're immediately you're kicked back. You associate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be a lot of people who quit smoking uh, start smoking again as soon as they have a drink or two. Totally. And I've always been better uh, at, at getting habits going on my own. Uh, I'm not much of a team player. I don't think I've been... <laughs> I don't think I've been in very many groups where, uh, you know, like I'm in, I'm in the Deion Taylor Backsliders group right now, and, uh, and it's the most successful relationship I've ever had with other musicians. But, it, you know, it's also like after all this stuff that it, it became a little better. But, you know, when you're, when you're playing like 240-odd gigs a year by yourself for 220 of them, and, and I mean, your band meets you there, in my case. My guys would just meet me there. We wouldn't rehearse very often. That's why I call them Rust Bucket. You know, we would just sort of pull it out. So it was really always on me in order for me to maintain that, that self-value. And that's what it really was for me as a constitution. I had a, I had a sort of smoke to become normal. And because I could function without anyone really noticing I had a problem, I, I sort of had like an Olympic tolerance like I didn't actually get high at all last year and I spent a lot of money on pot you know like I 
I got normalized. And hey. I heard them describe Hendrix like that. And I was, it scares me because none of the people that have this are alive. <laughs> right. You know, and I had to really realize it on myself. I had to start feeling crappy about what I was doing day to day. Um, and, you know, my relationship was the, really the biggest mirror in my life because I, I could hide it from my folks. I could hide it from my boss. I could hide it from my, I could hide it from everyone. A survivalist, really. That's what it's all about, surviving. And, uh, you know, I managed to survive for a very long time with that. And I think that alcoholics know what survival means. Um, and I certainly cocaine addicts do. Uh, cocaine Anonymous is great in the city for people that have general addiction issues because uh, somebody that has to do something often throughout the day. I never had a drink before 7 p.m., and if I did, it was at a barbecue. And I had nothing going on that night because I knew it made my voice hoarse and... Uh, I didn't have as much air in my chest after I smoked a million joints, but I could manage to still pull it off, you know? And, mm. and again, you, you start priding yourself on how well you can last in the mud pit. So, Substance abuse and music is our focus. Sean Pynchon, David McMichael, and Bill Wood in the studio with us. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you back after this. in the studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you as usual, and a terrific panel of guests with us. Sean Pynchon, David McMichael, and Bill Wood, and uh, an exceptionally frank conversation. Kudos to you guys for, uh, mm -hmm. for sharing as much as you have as we talk about uh, alcohol and drugs and, and music. It's gotten a little dark, but let's turn the corner a bit and talk about now and, and talk about moving forward. Uh, Bill Wood, you have channeled your energies these days into, uh, into giving back in a positive way. It's always good to uh, sort of have some other distractions and not just be kind of self-consumed or what have you. So, yeah, for the last 20 years, my wife and I have, we were part of the Out of the Cold um, umbrella organization, and uh, we used to sleep 40 to 60 kids a night, one, one night a week, and feed them and give them breakfast and send them on their way. And then the city um, had an initiative called uh, Streets to Homes, and so now all the kids are in housing, but they're still sort of marginalized and finding their way. So we've transitioned uh, to uh, being like a food bank, uh, dinner program kind of drop-in that happens once a week. Last year was going to be our last, uh, final year. We'd put, done it for 20 years and thought, oh, maybe it's time for a change of leadership, what have you. And at the end of the season, um, we asked them, so what, what, what are the, uh, the plans for the new leadership for the, the next year? And it was like to convince you and Vicky to stay. So, so we're, we're, we're back on board and we'll, we'll continue with it, you know, for as long as we can. It's, it's a very rewarding thing. I mean, it can be challenging. Um, I mean, a lot of these kids now are raising their own kids. So it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, it's a part daycare as well as dinner. And it's, but it's also very, very fun. Um, you know, I'm performing and recording and writing all the time. I've got another uh, recording project just uh, starting next month. It's uh, with my sister and my daughter, Wood Family Singers. This is something we've done and our nice. voices blend together. And it's, oh, the, nice. this is kind of like what's been happening since uh, just sort of getting off the uh, alcohol treadmill is just, I'm just finding, I'm, I'm getting a lot of things accomplished, a lot of things that have been on the back burner. 
uh, this year. Both of my daughters are getting married, so it's an exciting wow. year. Wow. And uh, congratulations! Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, a very fantastic and, and hopeful season of my life. And thank you for having me, by the way. This is really oh, awesome. It, it's been a pleasure, David McMichael. We know uh, the Danger Bees have a brand new release, "Fish with Wings," that uh, that you guys are, are promoting. Uh, what else is happening with you guys? We're playing some shows. You know, I've always got uh, kind of a solo project. I'll take uh, I'll take whatever shows are offered to me. So I get out out of the house a fair amount. Um, really, I think we're going to shoot a couple music videos and just kind of let it be what it is. I'm not sure that anyone at this point in the band is dying to uh, to make this their career. You know, we're all sort of happy with where it's at, and if it goes somewhere, it goes somewhere. And if not, then, I mean, that's the great thing. When, you know, a few years ago, when I really thought that this was my plan A and, uh, and we were going to go somewhere with the band, I was just unhappy all the time. I mean, that was also the alcohol, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I was just unhappy all the time because, well, we're not famous yet or whatever, like, <laughs> stupid thought process that is. Um, and uh, now it's just kind of like, okay, like, I love this as a hobby. And, uh, and everyone's happy with that. And it's a, a really good place to put the, uh, the time and effort and uh, financial resources that uh, drinking used to consume. <laughs> Amen. You're also hosting, uh, is it an open stage regularly? Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, open stage at uh, Relish Bar and Grill, 2152 Danforth Avenue, uh, every Sunday at nine o'clock with legendary drummer uh, Paul Brennan from uh, yeah. Big Sugar and uh, <laughs> The Odds and other assorted acts. And Sean Pension, you're the you're the new guy in the sobriety club, but yeah. uh, so far so good. Yeah. And you're staying busy. You, you were telling us off air about the all of the different markets that you play in right around Southern Ontario. Yeah, I'm playing four or five cities a week, uh, and again, I'm splitting my time working with Dion. And we've we've booked shows up until next year, um, so there's lots of touring coming up with that. We'll be in Kansas for Folk Alliance coming up. Uh, I, I can certainly say by not having a crippling marijuana problem. Uh, Flying into other countries has become a lot easier. <laughs> Going on the road and uh, you know, like driving home at the end of the night is is doesn't take as long. Time moves faster for some reason. Life has become a lot shorter now that I'm awake. Um, but I, I can say honestly, I've never had this much fun on stage. It's really the ultimate high for me again, which is what I which is what I had when I was 15 or 16 years old when I was sitting on the foot of my bed learning the Nirvana Unplugged album and trying to play the solos. You know, to me, that was it. I, if you could play that album, you were, you were a rock star. I, There's so much stuff I learned after that that was fueled with other influence. But now I'm kind of back at that, appreciating the finer lead belly tunes and sitting with my National Steel in my house and just having coffee and a tea and just really enjoying the fact that I get to play and my hands still work and that I'm still alive to do this and kind of getting over my own issues with being a celebrity kind of thing because, you know, that doesn't even work anymore. Like, the, we have to... The human race right now has a little catching up to do because the internet's moved very fast. So <laughs> that's a good way of saying. Yeah, Sean Pynchon's new album is called Monkey Brain. David McMichael and the Danger Bees, Fish with Wings, their new release, and Bill Wood and the Woodies, Mumbo Jumbo Tumbo is the newest record there. Guys, thank you all for uh, for thanks, being thanks so much. Thank you so yeah. much for having us. We appreciate yeah. awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I used the word several times on the uh, introductions there, Blair, but candid. Boy, that was a candid conversation. No kidding. Yeah, it was so great that they can they feel comfortable enough. I think it's I think it's helpful to other people 
when people who have had problems talk about them. Some of them said that they uh, either made a kind of an official announcement on Facebook or, or made reference uh, to their personal cleanup decisions on, on Facebook. And in my experience, anytime I've seen somebody do that or make mention of, hey, today's my anniversary, I'm X number of years sober or whatever it is, it's 100% supportive comments, which, mm-hmm. frankly, is amazing in, in social media. In this world, yeah. yeah. That, you know, nobody comes on and goes, oh, well, you were kind of a waste-case loser, weren't you? Like, there's never anything like that. It's yeah. just, good for you, keep going, or, hey, me too, here's, here's, you know, how far down the path I am in my own struggles and things. It's very, very positive. Yes. Good to see. Briefly in our time remaining, we need to give an update on the Hughes Room situation here in Toronto. The venue uh, abruptly shut its doors a number of weeks back, but there are things happening. There's an effort to try and get the doors back open again and to help deal with some of the debt that has piled up around that wonderful venue here in the West End of Toronto. And one of those efforts you're actually part of, Blair, Thursday, February 9th, so this coming Thursday, at a fantastic studio, the Canterbury Music Company. This is a recording studio that your friend Jeremy Darby owns and operates. Jeremy Darby is, uh, uh, well, he's been a guest on this show once, but uh, I've known him for many years now, and he's a wonderful guy and a fantastic engineer. Um, He's worked with Keith Richards, and he's worked with Elvis Costello, and he's worked with Squeeze, and he, you know, Joe Jackson. He's he's got a, a list of credits a mile long, and he's got this beautiful studio in uh, in downtown Toronto at Dufferin and King, and he has offered to present a concert in his studio, which means the sound is going to be fantastic. It sure will, yeah. yeah. For for both the performers and the uh, and the audience, and he's hoping to raise some money for the Hughes Room cause. Yeah, all the proceeds are going to Hughes Room. It's taking place this coming Thursday at Canterbury Music, three twenty two Dufferin Street. Blair is performing. Jen Schaefer and the Shiners, and Noah Zacharin. Everybody who's been guests on this show. That's right. <laughs> Noah Zacharin, wonderful guitar player, mm-hmm. uh, wry, wryly funny songs. Jen Schaefer, uh, really smart, sort of rootsy Americana kind of stuff. I, I would be there anyway if I wasn't playing. Well, you're fairly talented yourself, <laughs> yeah, I, I must yeah. say. Well, we'll see. Jeremy at CanterburyMusic.ca is where the uh, details are. Uh, Space is limited, so uh, get in touch with Jeremy. Again, Jeremy at CanterburyMusic.ca if you're interested in that. If you just want to help the cause for Hughes Room and help them get out of the hole, uh, they need about $150,000 is what they're shooting to raise. There are some corporate fundraising efforts taking place, but uh, some concerned individuals have got a GoFundMe page up and running. So if you search on GoFundMe for Hughes Room, you'll find out there how you can chip in as well. Just very briefly, in some other news, we'd be remiss if we didn't note, sadly, that HMV is in receivership and all stores across Canada are closing at the end of April. That is, unless I'm missing something, that's the last major specific music retailer still yeah. standing. Yeah, it's, it's, it truly is. This is the door closing. This is the end of an era. And for all the talk of, of vinyl coming back and so forth, uh, and it certainly is, but the dedicated uh, you know, record store chain 
Mm -hmm. seems to have disappeared. So support your local independent record store if you're lucky enough to have one around. Yeah, of which there are quite a few, actually. It's it's, it's great for that, that world. It's just, you know... The, the the chains necessarily have wider reach, and now they're gone. Yeah, and also from the bad news file, uh, word that the Silver Dollar, a legendary blues venue here, a good old grungy place at uh, College and Spadina here in Toronto, is going to be closing its doors for good on the 1st of May. There's been a plan in the works for a while to redevelop the site for student housing for uh, University of Toronto, which is right there. It was staved off in January, but uh, it looks like that's going ahead. I'm sure there will be more on that. We'll devote to some more time to that uh, and some other developments in terms of, of live music venues in the city of Toronto and elsewhere on a future show. But we've got to call it here. So uh, thanks again to our outstanding panelists, Sean Pynchon, David McMichael, and Bill Wood. Thank you, Blair Packham. Thank you, Mark Tang, for technical production. That's it for this week's show. We'll do it again next time we gather here in the studio and talk about the world of music.